As the worship team dismisses themselves from the stage, I would like to dismiss our kids for outdoor play ages three through fifth grade. Y'all have a, a beautiful day to go play outside for the remainder of service. You don't have to listen to me. Y'all can go have some fun. But for the rest of you, sorry. But uh, before we start tonight, I just wanted to remind you there was a video announcement for it, but I wanted to remind you to sign up for that 24 hours of prayer. Because again, our vision is to, 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 to love the world that Jesus died to save. And as we saw through that mask initiative, we do that better when it's not just this church, it's the church, right? Doing it together. So we're coming together in that prayer initiative with the, the national church. It's called America Praise. You can check it out at americapraise.org. And we're going to be praying together as a church family for the nation. Right? For, for all the things that were said in that video, racial reconciliation, for the sanctity of life, for the upcoming election. Because in our culture, right, in our culture, especially the media, they like to use the upcoming election to, to stir up fear. But in the church, it should not fuel fear, it should fuel our prayers. As we hold to our hope that doesn't change, which is, which is Jesus Christ, because our hope isn't tied to something that happens in November. Jesus is unchanging in the same yesterday, today, and forever and he sits on the throne. So maybe we be people, I was thinking about this today, like Daniel, because Daniel, right, he's in Babylon. They passed this edict, this ruling that doesn't just turn his world upside down. He could die because of it. And it says that what does he do when this happens? It says he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room, and he prayed three times a day as he always did. May we be people in every season, the highs and lows that are marked in a similar way by our prayer. May we be people that pray as we always did. But in light of the upcoming season in our culture, we wanted to launch this series called The Moral Dilemma. So if you're taking notes tonight, that is the name of the series we're stepping into. And we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verse 11. But before I pray tonight, I wanted to read a, a, a good chunk of 1 Corinthians 13. Starts in verse 1. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others... I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And then again, verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Jesus, we pray tonight. We know that, that if you're going to change everything, then we're going to have to surrender everything to you. <laughs> we're going to have to put away some things if we're going to move forward and follow you as, as you tell us to. And, God, we want to be a church that, that as you say, we want to be disciples and followers that are known by our love. We're going to love the world you died to save. Help us to do it well, God. Help us to be known for love. That the, the world would ask, how do you love each other so well? How do you love this region so well? We know it's going to come through the truth of your word and the Holy Spirit working in us. So do that tonight in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. So again, if you're taking notes, we're going to be in a, a new sermon series for the upcoming weeks called The Moral Dilemma. But to start tonight with a story. 
it was a, a couple years ago now, that a, a Christian publication published an article about how it's problematic to endorse candidates from the pulpit or to tether your church to a, a platform. And so I read it, and it was, it was good, well thought out, well written, so I retweeted it with this, uh, this account from my journey as a pastor where somebody came up to me after service and they were like, hey, I know you're a man of your convictions, but I have no idea who you voted for, and I like it that way, right? That's what he said. So I put that with that tweet, retweeted it, logged off, went about my day. I come back, end of my day. Turns out the Christian publication retweeted my tweet to tens of thousands of people, so my notifications were on fire. And when I say on fire, I mean a dumpster fire. <laughs> Among the replies, again, this is a tweet referencing, like, not endorsing a political candidate from the pulpit. Amongst the replies, and I quote, you're a sheep if you think the left isn't out to destroy your church and your freedoms, and you aren't leading your church accordingly. Also among the replies, right, because there's dozens of them. If you aren't actively speaking out and condemning Trump and those that support him, you're a fool. And mind you, this was coming from both sides. Dozens on dozens of accounts after this one tweet. And after all the name calling, all the flame throwing from both sides, it only affirmed my stance. Because what did each side want? What was the prevailing perspective from both directions? That the church should be a place that endorses my personal convictions. And those other folks that lean the other direction, forget them. Which kind of goes against the whole one in Christ thing in Galatians 3 where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, uh, blue or red, <laughs> progressive or conservative. We are one in Christ. And here's a news flash. There's only one body of Christ. There's only one family of faith. And in that one body of Christ, there will be people from two different political parties. Maybe even three, right? Let's get wild. <laughs> right? And we're all one in Christ. And if that makes your skin crawl, I got bad news for you. Heaven is going to be hellish for you because heaven is going to be diverse. You see, the deeper reason I believe that that article and lesser so my tweet got such a visceral reaction is because we bought a lie in the church that unity is sameness. Right? Unity is found in a united front. That we should walk in the same convictions down to the way that we vote. That's the pinnacle of unity. But that's a lie. Biblical unity is, is harmony that's found in diversity. You've heard Chris say that. You've heard Pastor Fred say that. Because it's true. It's harmony found in diversity. And biblical community is where there's diversity and people that think different, look different, vote different, are unified by common biblical values, namely the lordship of Jesus Christ. But unlike communities, tribes, as we've come to define them in our, 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 our culture today, where we're inclined to tribalism, tribes are only allowed to believe what the tribe believes. And the replies to that old tweet showed that tribes come from all corners, even corners of the church. So we'll dig more into this tonight, but let's get the disappointment out of the way from the jump. If you saw this sermon series graphic and you were thinking they might endorse the path forward this November, this isn't that. If you were like, they're going to show us the, the path forward, the platform that fixes our nation's dilemma, this isn't that. Because a moral dilemma, let me define it in the intro, is by definition a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two courses of action, neither of which clearly lines up with morality. So the question we're asking in this series is how do we walk this out as faithful Christians who want to follow Jesus Christ faithfully? 
These are some questions we want to tackle in this series, but there's a a great book that was released this year, you could say for such a time as this, and it's called Compassion and Conviction. It's by the Ann Campaign. Great campaign. Just about the false choices sometimes that politics can feed us between, say, compassion or conviction or or social justice versus moral order, and, and how do we as believers faithfully engage in politics? And I can recommend this book because look how thin that is, right? Sometimes I look at people and I'm like, I would recommend this book, but it's like 400 pages, right? You can read this book in like two days and then pat yourself on the back for having completed an entire book. I like to throw those in between the 300-page commentaries, get a little 100-page book in there so I can feel good about myself. But in this book, the author Justin Gibney writes that there is no single Christian policy or political plan. To act like there is one or to wish that there was one would be to make the old mistake of thinking that the kingdom of God is like human kingdoms. I like what he says here. He says, the goal is not to have all Christians share the same exact politics, but to have all Christians think Christianly about politics. What does that mean? Again, we'll be digging into this for weeks. But in terms of engaging biblically, right, so often the moment that we step into a political conversation or forum or replies on Twitter, we act like all the biblical commands to love just somehow went out the window. So I wanted to start with pointing at 1 Corinthians 13 tonight, but for all its famous thoughts on love, I wanted to focus on verse 11, where again, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. You know, when I look back on my distant childhood, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I would think that when most of us look back on our early childhood, like politics was one of the last things on our minds. And man, sometimes as an adult, it feels like putting politics back on the shelf and living like that again would be the ideal. So sometimes we can make uh, religious excuses, as some might say, Jesus juke uh, the political system. Like simply say, we're just going to put that away, or we're going to put that on the shelf, and we're just going to preach the gospel. But we can't punt politics or put it away. To do so is to, to passively admit that we're okay with the status quo. And I would say be cool with ignoring some of the directions of Scripture. What do I mean? In Jeremiah 29, we see God command his people to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. And these people were in exile in Babylon. How much easier is it for us in a, in a, a, a constitutional republic to work for the good around us? And if you keep reading in the Minor Prophets, you get to the book of Micah 6, excuse me, Micah in chapter 6, verse 8 where we get our great requirement, the requirement God gives his people to love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with our God. You know, the American church, what we do so well is is we love mercy. We extend mercy to people that are hurting. But to do justice, that means to topple some of the systems that are hurting people in the first place. And in our nation especially, that will take politics. And then keep reading into the Gospels, right, where Jesus is teaching, and he teaches us that the greatest commandments are to love God and then love our neighbor. To let go of politics is to let go of a powerful tool to work for prosperity, do justice practically, and systemically love our neighbor, all of which God tells his people to do in Scripture. So we can't let go of politics because politics determine policies, and policies affect people. And the Bible tells us in a hundred different ways, hey, people matter. Your neighbors, their well-being, it matters to God. So ultimately, though, politics, it's a tool. You can use tools in different ways. When we go to the DR to build latrines, 
We're probably not building them the same way if I was paying a company to do it in my backyard, using the tools a little differently, different process. So we know, biblically, we're commanded, again, to seek the peace and prosperity of our nation. We know, biblically, that we are to provide for the poor and help the poor and people in the margins. And yet, there's more than one way to do that politically. So again, you could say that a goal for this series is not that all of us would think the same about politics, but we would all think Christianly about politics. What do I mean? Well, again, when we conflate our faith with politics, 1 Corinthians 13 and many verses like it remind us that what we often chalk up as contending in the faith is often just being contentious in the flesh. <laughs> when we go and we want to debate and we want to prove people wrong, we think we're contending for God's glory. In 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us, no, you're a noisy gong. And that's not anointed, that's, that's pretty annoying. But again, to go back to verse 11, talks about childish things. And I, as a kid, Bill Clinton was the first president that I was, like, mindful of. Again, as a little kid, you're not even worried about who's in the White House. But Bill Clinton was the first president that I, I, I knew was in the White House. I was paying attention to what was going on. So it's probably why I've never forgotten Philip Yancey, in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, is recounting uh, a breakfast that Bill Clinton had with 12 religious leaders. And after this meeting, he had, he had some time alone with Philip Yancey, and he said to him, I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was unprepared for the hatred I get from Christians. Why do Christians hate so much? You know, I've never forgotten reading that, because Jesus said that his people, his church would be known for their love. Love for neighbor, even love for enemy, right? We're, that's what we're supposed to be known by. When our witness in the political arena is one of hate, then we've fallen out of step with following the one who says to be known by your love, even your love for your enemy. Why does this happen? And it's the heart of what I want to look at tonight. And if you're taking notes, it's the pole of polarization, and the direction of discipleship. The pole of polarization and then the direction Jesus calls us to when we follow him. Because, you know, not much has changed in terms of the tone since the Clinton administration. But you could say we've all got a platform to amplify what we're putting out there with social media. We can just be louder and more prolific in what we're putting out there. So the question is, why, why do we still fall out of step so easily? And again, it's a result of the pole of polarization. And I would even tell you tonight, it is biblically childish. It says, when I was a child, I spoke, I thought, I reasoned as a child would. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Why? Because I'm pursuing the love that Paul was just talking about. Again, what, what does that verse have to do with what we're talking about tonight in this series? Well, I believe that God wants us to put away some childish tendencies and impulses tonight that get in the way of our witness and the love in 1 Corinthians 13 that God wants us to be known by. So where do we start tonight? I want to start with brain development. It's a long story, but my family kind of knows about brains. We've looked at a lot of MRIs, and, and we were singing that song. I don't remember the words exactly, but right, show me your glory, right, and talking about wonder. Man, when, when I just read about the brain, consider the brain, it sparks wonder in me. Like, you talk about show me your glory, the brain is glorious, that it even exists and works to begin with. And it's made up in three major parts. First, you've got the brain stem. It's the smallest part of our brain. It regulates some of the basic bodily functions like breathing and digestion. And right past the brain stem is the cerebellum. 
which helps regulate more voluntary functions like speech and posture and alike. Finally, there's the cerebrum. This is complex, but there's two parts of note tonight because at the base of the cerebrum is the amygdala. And in the amygdala, it deals with emotions that are impulsive, automatic, even unconscious. Like the amygdala is where our, our, our fears are rooted. It's where we have triggered responses. It's where we have biases. It's the impulses of our flesh in, in many ways. And then beyond the amygdala is the prefrontal cortex. That's where nuanced, complex thought and emotion are processed. It's where we journey when we're feeling empathy. It's where we go to when we wrestle with forgiveness. It's, it's where God calls us when he says, hey, deny those impulses and follow me. That's, that's what takes us to the prefrontal cortex. Again, it's the largest part of the brain, but many scientists would tell us it's the least used. There's a professor of psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Science at Harvard that said only 10% of the population regularly uses it daily. And it's entirely possible that you could go your whole life just functioning from the amygdala and your impulses. I mean, it's how we largely start at birth and as a child. Think about it. Things that process in the prefrontal cortex, like complex choices, navigating grades between black and white, self-control, <laughs> feeling empathy, they're hard for young children for this very reason. Because in early stages of brain development, we can't comprehend and wrestle with the tension. So we accept binaries of good and bad. The world is black and white. The world is good and evil, no in between. And a result of this kind of thinking is that we will drift into polarization. We will drift into tribalism. There were uh, multiple studies done in the 90s where young school children were put in a summer program and they were assigned two different colors of shirts. Now, none of the teachers, none of the adults attributed any values to either group. They didn't treat them any differently. They just referenced them by the color of shirts that they wore. And over some time, over a matter of weeks, the children formed tribes based on their shirt colors and began stereotyping kids that wore the other color shirt. Intergroup prejudices and bias formed based solely on the color of an assigned shirt. And in their findings, the strongest findings were found in three to five-year-olds. And then once you got to six to nine-year-olds, it was a little less. And then beyond, it got even less. Because as the brain develops, we should be able to see beyond the pull of polarization and these simple ways that we form tribes. And you know what was so fitting as I'm reading this, this study this week is that the shirts in the, the most famous experiment were red and blue. Because few things pull us into polarization, especially as adults like politics, where we continue to speak and think and reason in so many ways like children. Further studies confirm that this pull of polarization is indeed regression. One study of human development found in scans that polarized thinking works its way back to the amygdala, right, where it takes the reins and we revert to either attacking or avoiding. We accumulate reasons to hate those people rather than listening and finding reasons to love and empathize. We begin defending rather than discovering. And all of this shrinks our ability to think in complex ways and engage in deeper thought that takes place in the prefrontal cortex, like empathy, like forgiveness like loving enemies, all those things that are counterintuitive on the surface. I share all this because polarization is regression, not just mentally and physically in our brains, but spiritually in our hearts. 
Polarization, tribalism is among the childish things that God's asking us to put away if we're going to follow Christ in love. But you think about what we feed on in our culture, right? Cable news makes its profit off polarization. Social media makes its money off division. Go watch that new documentary on Netflix, uh, The Social Dilemma. We didn't plan overlap in the titles. It just worked out that way. But go watch that because it's telling. And I've harped on the statistics before. I'm not going to harp on them again. But you look at the statistics. Nominal Christians that are going to church are ingesting far, 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 far more cable news and social media than they ever are scripture and the word of God. And the result is unloving behavior, noisy gongs, clanging cymbals, behaving like spiritual infants in soiled diapers. Again, polarization is regression. And to give into its pole is to step into the childish, unloving practices that God has told us to put away if we're going to love well. You know, as I, as, I, as I was writing this week and studying this week and reflecting on Twitter, it was a dangerous place, I thought back to a picture that went viral a couple years ago. It's of Michelle Obama hugging George Bush, President George Bush. It went viral. And while it was going viral, it was shared by a Christian speaker and account. And again, among the replies, how could he hug a baby killer? Again, a couple replies after that. Why would she show love to a warmonger? Right, just back and forth, back and forth, shots from both sides, both corners, all kinds of tribes. And it got me thinking, man, when it comes to showing kindness and love to people who, who, who don't think like us, maybe don't vote like us, how sad is it when, when people in the political realm seem to be getting it more than people in the pews? But listen, this, this polar polarization is not unique to our, our two-party system. I don't preach this as a knock on our, our representative democracy and constitutional republic. No, this is a tale as old as time. It's an impulse that, that mankind has had since hunting and gathering. And it's one Jesus tackled from the very beginning of his ministry. Because if you pay attention when Jesus calls his disciples in the Gospels, you realize that from its outset, discipleship was an anti-polarization movement. To follow Jesus meant to turn from the pole of polarization and follow him. Because the time that Jesus walked the earth, they were under Roman oppressive rule. This was not some representative government that was looking out for the common good, especially for the Jews. No, this was a Roman, violent, often brutal occupation of the Jewish people. And they had prophecies where, where God promised that, hey, you were going to come out of this. But they didn't know how. They didn't know when. So there were proposed solutions presented by different groups in that time. We think our, our nation is divided now. Man, Jesus was stepping in a, a season of division because you had all these different tribes. The first is the one we hear the most about, the Pharisees. Their solution was to, to keep the law perfectly or as best they could. They wanted to move, make Judaism great again, and they were just waiting for Rome to fall and crumble under the hand of God. So they mostly avoided civic duties for religious ones, but Jesus and the Bible show us that as they clung to this identity, they were losing their relevancy. Then you've got the Sadducees. If the Sadducees were the religious fundamentalists, they would have been the, the religious liberals because they took the interpretation of Scripture a little more liberal, a little more figurative than literal that the Pharisees did. And they coped with Rome by compromising with Rome. They sought political relevancy and equity by helping collect taxes or take part in judicial matters. But it was often 
at the cost of their identity and their convictions. Third group is the Essenes. They were the smallest of the four Jewish groups. So rather than battle, rather than press, they retreated. They bunkered down to live a life of isolation, to, to attempt to live a life of purity. They were isolationists that wanted to become holy hermits. And you don't actually read about them in Scripture. You read about them because of Jewish historians. And I believe that's because when, when we want to completely detach from the world, God wants us to love and help save and reconcile with. You're going to become irrelevant. You're not going to go down in his pages. Then the fourth group is the zealots. They were radicalized Pharisees. They were red-hot patriots. They weren't going to patiently wait for Rome to go away. They weren't going to wait for, for Rome to fall. They believed God was the only right ruler of the Jewish people. So they thought they were doing the Lord's work when they killed either Romans or people that sympathized with Rome. They were political terrorists who thought their cause was righteous, and among them was a group called the Sicarii. They got their name from the small curved blades that they carried. The word Sicarii literally means dagger men. And these Sicarii would go around in public gatherings, find, again, either Romans or Roman sympathizers, and gut them in the crowd to spark fear. It's like guerrilla terrorism by the Sicarii. So you see, when, when Jesus stepped on Roman soil, it was intensely divided. And one of the reasons that thousands of people followed him and were hanging on his every word is they wanted to know who was he going to fall in line with? Well, what, what party was he going to join? What platform was he going to stand on when he ushered in his kingdom? And Jesus quickly shows that their solutions aren't the answer as much as they are all moral dilemmas, plans and platforms that fall short of the kingdom he wanted to usher in. To the Essenes, Jesus offended them by spending time with sinners and the unclean. To the Pharisees, he refused to obey their countless hundreds of rules. To the Sadducees, he, appoints, he points again and again to the supernatural realm that they denied, especially the resurrection. To the Zealots, he refused to topple the powers in place. To the Sicarii, he didn't use violence. Instead, he said, hey, turn the other cheek, right? Be peacemakers. You know, these groups were all living in politicized boxes, much like we do today, and Jesus effectively lit all those boxes on fire. You know, the Jewish people were looking to see where was Jesus going to fall. And as I'm studying this week, I'm thinking of the, the, the chapter from Joshua where he's about to lead his, his men, the Israelites, in a battle against Jericho. And like every good leader, he is on his knees in prayer, praying. And, and, and God in his glory shows up, and Joshua asks a hey. Pretty high T, high testosterone question. He said, hey, you for us or against us? And I love God's answer, neither. <laughs> the implication is, no, I don't choose sides. I reign over everything. You got to choose me, right? Similarly, Jesus' indirect answer to each one of these groups of Jewish people was, hey, none of the above. And he would say the same to us today. You and your platforms, they all offer good bits of paths forward, but they're all incomplete. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I won't be choosing a platform, but you got to choose me, right? And we'll come back to this statement that Jesus makes at the end of his time with his disciples, but from the outset of their discipleship journey, Jesus didn't just say no to membership in their groups. He called them out of their groups to do life together as family. And again, this is like anti-polarization movement. I think sometimes we can dehumanize 
the disciples like they were all blank slates, <laughs> lumps of clay that hadn't been touched when Jesus called them. But again, they're coming out of this divided culture. And amidst Jesus' disciples were militant zealots. There was a tax collector who worked to rob hardworking Jews. There was a handful of hardworking Jews who worked as fishermen just trying to get by. Then if you look outside the 12, you got Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who had ties to the Pharisees. It's like Jesus got together a handful of protesters, a couple of blue-collar workers trying to make ends meet, a wealthy CEO who leans conservative, and then all these other mishmash of people, and he says, all right, let's do life together. And listen, he didn't make them choose a party or a side. He invited them to choose him, the way, the truth, and the life. And in him was and is unity amidst diversity. Think about this. Jesus chose, again, a tax collector, Matthew, right? <laughs> the, the zealots, especially the Sicarii, he would have been like the target for every one of their attempted kills, right? He, they would have hated him more than the Romans themselves because he betrayed his own people to rob them with taxes for his own personal benefit. And so Jesus takes him, this target of the zealot's violence. He said, hey, take a seat right here next to this guy, Simon the Zealot. I'm sure Matthew was like, Simon the who? <laughs> Simon the Zealot. At one point in his life, Simon would have gladly gutted Matthew and thought he was doing the Lord's work as he fell to the ground. And yet Jesus takes political foes at complete opposites of the cultural spectrum. And he says, hey, sit at the table together with me. You better believe that he can do the same in our culture with two sides of a political aisle. You know, welcome to the family where your cultural foe is now family in Christ. It's called reconciliation. If you're taking notes, put down 2 Corinthians 5 because that's the work of Jesus and it's now our work. But you know what the work of the enemy is? As defined by scripture, is categorization. What am I talking about? Well, in Revelation 12, the Bible calls the enemy the accuser of the brethren. That Greek word for accuse is category. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's where we get the English word category or categorize. You know, this sets up such a beautiful picture of the gospel again in scripture because the enemy would accuse you of all kinds of identities. Failure, sinner, shameful, guilty. We've all been there. But Revelation goes on to say just verses later that he's defeated by the blood of the lamb, right? We overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. God only sees two categories, those that are covered by the blood and those that aren't. And when you're a new creation, right, when you're dead to sin, does that mean that there are, are, are lifestyles and behaviors you'll no longer be a party to? Absolutely. But the enemy wants to strip us of unity by dicing and dividing us up into so many petty groups until we begin to do his work, <laughs> accusing and categorizing our own brothers and sisters, as it says in one translation. You know, the social psychologist, his name's Joshua Crook, spelled with a K, not a C, because that would be unfortunate. He said in his book, Us Versus Them, A Case for Social Empathy. Listen to this. He says, the process of categorization is as old as men, and no other animal species categorizes itself so neatly. Yet the ultimate, most vulnerable, and weakest victim of categorization is empathy. Categorization is a process that destroys the very empathy that enlivens communities, the empathy that traditionally binds diverse communities together. You know, this isn't a religious book, but it checks out biblically, right? A process as old as man. You go back to Genesis, right? The very first job God gives Adam is to categorize and name creation. So categorization is not evil. It was 
was there in the garden. But the enemy has us categorized so that we can separate and polarize and then even demonize others. Whereas God wants to create, he almost, he almost says it right there, diverse communities bound together, but in Christ. You know, categorization is at the root of the pole of polarization. The enemy, it's like he throws us different colored shirts, and he asks us to get back to those childish ways of reasoning and thinking and speaking that God is trying to have us put away. Because when we categorize, when we polarize, we begin to think of those people, they're the problem. And we forsake unity and community for tribalism and polarization. All Democrats are snakes. Anybody that voted for, voted for Trump is a sheep. I've read both of those things online from people that go to church. And we might shrug it off, think it's just a, a necessary evil. No, it's plain evil. It's a power and principality. Like we're, we're, our, our battle is not with flesh and blood, with that avatar and that face behind it. No, our, our battle is with powers and principalities like the pole of polarization. It's a childish practice that God tells us to put away if we're going to follow Jesus. Yet we find ourselves walking in it because it's as thick as the air we breathe. Let's be serious. As thick as the air we breathe in our culture. You know, I, we're going to be praying for it in those, those days in October and November. I know many of you are praying for it right now, for revival in our nation. For revival to break out. For the spirit to break out. For the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And to see God's kingdom built here in America and yet then we disqualify ourselves based on the very prerequisite we're given in Scripture. In Psalm 133, it says, where there is unity, the Lord will bestow a blessing. And yet we po let polarization pull us out of that blessing again and again. Because, again, we buy this lie that unity is sameness. It isn't. But here's the truth to walk away with tonight. We're divided politically in this room. Newsflash. We're divided politically. And we'll stay that way. And the enemy would love for you to buy the lie that we talked about at the, the beginning tonight, that somehow that makes unity impossible. But again, biblical unity is harmony in the midst of our differences. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, but it does mean loving as we continue to follow Jesus and choose his way together. And it means, as we talk about the idea of a moral dilemma, giving the same grace that you give yourself to those people that may choose differently than you. And we'll continue to look at this practically in the coming weeks. But to close this introduction from a high-level view, Chris, if you could have the team come up. Romans 12 tells us we are being discipled daily. You're either conforming to the patterns of the world or you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind and the truth of God's word. There's no neutral state in this verse. You're doing one or the other, conforming or transforming, and something is discipling you daily. So the question is, what? Is it cable news or the truth of scripture? Is it social media or God's word? Is it Jesus and his ministry of reconciliation or is it the culture of polarization that we live in? Are you being discipled into a diverse community or an insulated tribe? Are you putting your hope in a platform, in a way, or Jesus who is the way? You know, Psalm 23, there's a verse I go back to again and again where it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Because, again, there are seasons in life where, where we feel like we're surrounded, right? And it's just a reminder that, hey, even when your enemy is, is brain malformations, God prepares a table for you. 
I've encouraged other people. Even when, even when the, the enemy is cancer, even when the enemy is depression, even when the, the, the enemy is mental illness, God still prepares a table for you in the presence of those enemies and ushers you into communion with him. That's always been my perspective of that verse, and I don't know if it's a wrong perspective, but just studying this week, Jesus, as he does with so much of the Old Testament, transforms and elevates it. Because when I think of Psalm 23, I think of, yeah, my enemies are at the table, but they got to they gotta reflect on my victory. And this is to their shame, right, that I'm going to overcome them. But then when you read the New Testament, Jesus takes people, us and them, friends and foes, people and people that they would have considered their enemies, and he says, share a table together and be family. We want to position ourselves so often over people when, when Jesus is saying, no, be with them. You know, as we prepare to take communion, I'm reminded of the, the diverse backgrounds of those people that shared the table with Christ at the Last Supper and the initiation of communion. Again, we don't know how Simon and Matthew's relationship, how it developed over three years between their call and that Last Supper. There had to have been some awkward moments. We don't get stories about those awkward beginnings or the process that they went through, but we do know what it took. And that was choosing Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And having the faith in him to walk in unity with those that weren't like them. It all starts with Jesus. And again, at the Last Supper, when they had just had the supper, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that his time to, to leave was coming. And what does he tell them? This is where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in the Gospel of John. Because he knew that pole of polarization, as soon as he left, he was going to start pulling on them again. It was thick there, even thicker than in our culture. And he wanted to remind them, hey, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's the way and source of hope in every season, even divided seasons like ours today. So in this season of, of categorization, in this season of polarization, may we remember what unifies us and fuels our love. And, and when the, the categorizer and accuser of the brethren points his finger at us, sinner, failure, may we remember what these elements represent and the grace, the mercy, and the love that flow from the cross. And as we take our elements in hand, may we remember what Paul says of the Last Supper, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In these next moments, let's partake in the, the bread together. Break our walls down. Spirit, break out. Spirit, break out. Heaven, come down. Heaven, And Paul says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the juice together. Your glory 
shaking of the earth and sky revival we want to see your kingdom every name. You are the way above every other way. You are the truth over every other truth. <laughs> and you are the life over every life. We thank you for your sacrifice. We choose you again. And when our culture and the pole of polarization demands that we choose sides, we choose you again. And we choose to love as you commanded us to. May we not cause the world to ask, hey, why do they hate so much? <laughs> May we cause the world to ask, how do they love so well in a culture of such division? We've been guilty of categorizations, of, of throwing people in boxes and, and putting lids on them that, that grace and love can't come through, Lord God. May we see the image of God again in each one of them. May we extend the same love and grace that we receive from you. And as we remember the, the recognize this moral dilemma, may we extend the same grace that we give ourselves. If we've been guilty, if we've been guilty of listening to the, the, the accusations thrown at us by the enemy, of our guilt, God, of our failures, categories and sentences that, that he would want to put us in as a failure or a fraud and put a period at the end of, God, remind us again of your grace and your mercy. That we can continue to push forward and follow you. And God, I pray that we would, would cast off those things that hinder, the sin that entangles, those things, those childish ways of thinking and reasoning and speaking that you are asking us to put away. Because again, we want to be a church that builds the church you envision and loves the world you died to save. And it's going to take us putting away some childish ways so that we can love better and have a better witness. So God, make us vessels. God, as we fill ourselves with these elements, God, I pray that you would fill us with your grace. Fill us with your hope. God, fill us with your peace, with your ministry of reconciliation. Where there is division, God, help us to bring your hope, your love, your mercy. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Thank you that when... When, when the enemy would accuse us or categorize us, we can remember that you are our father and we are your sons and daughters. So God, we ask as you taught us to, to pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we love well, may we usher it in, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. We'll see you next week. <laughs>